Hello, beautiful, and welcome to Finding Fertility. I'm your host, Monica Cox from FindingFertility.co, and I created this podcast to help get you to start thinking outside of the box and realize that your infertility might have nothing to do with your lady bits. Rooted in functional medicine and personal experience, Finding Fertility is all about looking at the whole body and finding the root cause of your infertility. Finding Fertility does not diagnose, prescribe, or treat any issues of infertility. But what we do is take a holistic approach and improve your diet and your lifestyle to get you steps closer to creating your dream family. Just by being here with me, listening to this podcast, you're already going down the right path to making your dreams come true. Let's do this together. Hello, beautiful. Welcome back to another episode of Finding Fertility. I'm your host, Monica Cox, and I'm incredibly honored and excited to have Jessica Ann Penn on with us today. We're going to have a little bit of a different conversation, but I hope it's going to be really helpful. So welcome, Jessica. Thank you. So just tell our listeners a little bit about you if they don't already know who you are. Okay. I advocate for more detailed clitoral anatomy to be included in medical literature and curricula. I also try to get misinformation about vulvas removed um, because there is a lot of misinformation that has been used to promote female genital cosmetic surgery. Um, I also try to get, um, I've gotten consent forms changed. I've tried to get privileging change so that doctors who have not been trained cannot do surgeries they have not been trained to do. Um, yeah, and so my goal is to prevent harm to women undergoing procedures on their vulvas. Yeah, and this comes from a personal experience for you. So it's a really, you know, deep-seated advocacy. I think you do an amazing job to get this information out there. I really feel it's like the Goliath, <laughs> you know, story because you are up against a, you know, multi-billion-dollar industry, a really deep-rooted kind of. I don't want to say boys' club because it's a girls' club too, and. Um, it's, it's great work that you're doing. And I think even if you stop today, what you have already done is really going to shift, shift um, the timeline for, for women's health. So thank you for that. Um, I follow you because I love your boldness to stand up to authority. Um, I know a lot of women listening to this right now have been in the doctor's office and got that white coat syndrome of like, well, they're the expert. They should know what they're doing. They have my health in their best interests, but something inside of them feels off. Um, for you, with your work, what's your main goal for women um, um, to have this information and take it and use it in, you know, everyday life, you know, even if they're not dealing with, you know, infertility or, uh, you know, an issue with their vagina, what, what would you want for, you know, the young Jessica back a few years ago to have the knowledge to walk into a room and, you know, advocate for herself and her health? Well, I guess the main thing when I was younger, would have been, I would have liked for my 17 year old self to question what I read in peer reviewed medical literature, which is really sad. It's sad that I have to say that, but the reality is there is a lot of misinformation that gets published in medical journals and in medical textbooks. And it's really important to 
look for primary sources and see whether there is actually any evidence supporting the claims that you find. And, you know, again, it's, it's sad that it's not trustworthy, but it isn't. Um, and so, you know, I wish that when I was 17 and I saw doctors claiming that protruding labia minora were caused by excess androgens and aging and sexual activity and masturbation, I had questioned whether or not that was actually true. It turns out none of those claims are true, mm-hmm. but I thought that they had to be true because they were published by medical authorities. Yeah. I feel like so many of us in the infertility world feel the exact same way, right? There's all this um, medical you know, jargon, and they're literally telling you, well, this is the way. So this is the only way you can do it. And it's really hard to find, you know, trusted resources that are so outside of the box, or maybe, you know, completely different than what your doctors are saying. What do you think would be the tipping point for women to um, trust their intuition and go, okay, you know, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't sound right. Even though it's peer reviewed and like triple board certified, what do you think through your advocacy now, what's kind of one of the main things that you would suggest for women? I mean, I guess for me, because of my experience, I don't, I'm not too ready to trust doctors. And so if I, if some procedure has been recommended to me, I will ask for evidence supporting it. I will ask for evidence um, because, you know, I'm not necessarily just going to trust my doctor's recommendation. And I think that any good doctor will be willing to provide you evidence to support their recommendations. And if they don't, then I would say find a new doctor. I don't so much think it's about trusting intuition. I didn't have any intuition exactly that told me that what I read was wrong. Um, the only thing that I really did doubt was when I read doctors claiming that the labia minora played no role in sexual function, because I did intuitively think that they did. And then I remember feeling crazy because I looked online and I read in all capital letters that they didn't. And the top labioplasty surgeon in the country has claimed that they don't. And he published it in the aesthetic surgery journal which is the top cosmetic surgery journal in the world. He's published it since my surgery, but at the time of my surgery, I found this, you know, in peer reviewed medical journals and online. And I, you know, I thought, okay, well, they're the experts. They must know I must be wrong. I'm just a 17 year old girl, Mm -hmm. but I was right. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I definitely say that you had something in you that was saying these things didn't make up, they didn't add up. And I think a lot of the time, um, do you think as a society, we've just been trained to trust the doctors that this was just like, you know, the thing that we needed to do, they were the experts? Well, in theory, our healthcare system depends on our ability to trust doctors because we as individuals you know, we don't really have time to become experts on every like medical problem that we have, right? That's, it's, you know, a lot to ask, Um, especially for like the average person who may not be that smart. You know, we actually do need to trust our experts and in an ideal world, experts would be trustworthy 
However, at least in women's health and probably in other areas of medicine, um, you know, there are there are just sometimes things that are done and things that are said that are not accurate. Um, and what's funny is I've seen doctors be pretty cynical about it. Like I actually had a urogynecologist I went to say, yeah, a lot of the, of the things that get published in medical textbooks, you know, they were just someone's professional opinion at some mm -hmm. point, and then they got repeated and there is no evidence, but, you know, they just become something that everyone believes. And so that's why it's really important to look for evidence and, but I mean, that might be hard for the average person. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's not the best situation, but if people can, you know, it, it's good to be able to get your hands on studies and, you know, look at the methodology and figure out, you know, what's actually valid. Yeah. Yeah. How do you think we got here? You know, the medical system, let's say it's about 200, 300 years old. You know, how did we get to a place, especially in women's health, that um, it's opinions or it's um, almost like society's view on women instead of just hard medical facts? Well, it used to be worse. This idea that medicine <laughs> is evidence-based is actually new. <laughs> right. So what's actually really interesting is how doctors got people to trust them back when doctors actually did more harm than good. And, you know, back in the day, I think as recently as the 1800s, right? I forget there there's that guy, Samwise. Do you know who I'm talking about? Um, um is it Joseph Lister? No, 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 I'm thinking there was this guy, Samwise. Okay. Who, uh, came up with the idea that doctors needed to wash their hands before delivering babies because um, he noticed that wealthy women were dying at much higher rates, like wealthy women who were going to the doctor yeah. uh, to deliver their babies were dying in childbirth much more often than women who were going to midwives. And so he noticed that and somehow figured out that people needed to wash their hands Um in 1847 and he went a little bit crazy because no one would listen to him um and then louis pasteur confirmed germ theory you know after his death so he never really got that vindication while he was alive yeah <laughs> um, i'm i mean it was the same with i mentioned joseph joseph lester you know back in 1876 he was a surgeon from scotland and he was trying to convince his colleagues of the same thing like we need to be sterilizing our equipment our space our hands and yeah, they didn't listen. It took over eight years to make that standard practice um, in medicine. So yeah, I never really thought of it that, you know, when something is being quote unquote invented, which medicine was invented, right? There's going to be a lot of like fuck ups. And I know a lot of women, especially black women were, you know, just kind of used as um, pawns in discovering you know, really the human body and what's going on. Yeah, I mean, so in the old days, a lot of the things that doctors did caused more harm than good, like bloodletting. Um, and they maintained, you know, their authority. Like, if you look at the early Hippocratic Oath, and if you look at the original 
American Medical Association's code of ethics, you will see a lot of language about how patients should obey and like, and doctors are, you know, the most noble profession and, you know, things like that. Um, so what Dr. Eric Topol says is there's this legacy of eminence-based medicine instead of evidence-based medicine. And we have been trying to transition to evidence-based medicine, but it actually has not been around very long. So this idea that, you know, like doctors have not gotten less trustworthy, they've gotten more trustworthy. It's just that now more regular people have access to medical information and can see behind the curtain, can see how much the doctors are doing is not a good idea, even though like in general, medicine has gotten a lot better. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think with, you know, your field with the, the plastic surgery or even the surgeries on the vagina and IVF, they're quote unquote new technologies, right? You know, IVF has been around just over 40 years. I'm not really sure how long, you know, um, people have been operating on vulvas forever. Um, okay. It's most fundamentally a symptom of cultural suppression of female sexuality and I actually do think that there are a lot of parallels between female genital mutilation and female genital cosmetic surgery. Um, the first labioplasties were done as treatment for nymphomania. All right, so it's a bit ironic that now doctors are marketing these procedures as improving sexual function, right? When they used to do them to suppress sexual function. Um, so yeah, they've been doing those a long time. Um, and I do think it's really important to say vulva instead of vagina because vagina yep. is cavity. And when we refer to vulvas as vaginas, we fundamentally define female genitals as a birth canal and a cavity for male pleasure. And we sort of linguistically erase what provides women with the most pleasure. Yeah, no, I'm right? here for that. I can use and vulva. So, <laughs> and I actually think calling the vulva a vagina and calling female genitals collectively vagina is a symptom of this cultural suppression of female sexuality where we just kind of ignore, you know, we ignore that women are sexual, that women have desire, you know, historically, you know, if women had too much desire, that was seen as a problem, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, I, th I just think there's this you know, long-standing cultural legacy of suppressing female sexuality in different ways. And one way is not even speaking about the vulva, right? And just having this idea that the vulva should be invisible. And also, you know, the number one medical concern about the clitoris is not that it might not work right. It's that it might be too big. Yeah. And I think that that says a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think in, in some of the posts that I, I've seen you um, do that this is this kind of suppression of women's sexuality and um, orgasms and is is part of the um, the use my words lightly here, kind of the medical misinformation or, you know, the suppression of women's health because they're so um, they don't want to cross that line of sexuality you know, like, oh, no, don't do that. Don't talk about that. This is the root cause of censoring information about the clitoris and vulva from medical literature and curricula. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's a really big issue because, um, you know, I've seen once again on your post, like um, women who have vulvas and clitoris and want good sex are in the same boat of this suppression. No, don't talk about that. That's too much for me. I can't go there. And they're OBGYNs and they look at these things all the time and they deal with women all the time. And yet they're not even able to stand up for their own sexuality and their own, um, you know, their own womanhood in a way. Yeah, they treat it as if it's not medically important. Yeah. Right. And they'll say, well, we don't focus on pleasure. We're just focused on reproduction which is why I have argued a lot that, you know, the clitoris is reproductive anatomy and it should be treated as such. And yeah. it's also dehumanizing to insist that females can continue reproducing just fine without sexual pleasure, right? Because, I mean, like, in my opinion, it's a denial of female sexual agency. Generally, the reason why women have sex is for pleasure. Mm-hmm. So in order to continue having it without pleasure, in my opinion, you know, it, it puts you in a position of just pleasing somebody else. And so you would only do it to please someone else or because you are coerced by your culture. Or trying to get pregnant. I mean, for someone who dealt with infertility unexplained for almost six years, never saw a positive pregnancy test. I can tell you right now, there was no support in um, the mental and emotional area of um, sex being sex for pleasure, for, you know, um, oneness with your partner, with your own, you know, your own satisfaction, you know, satisfaction. It literally became, like you say, like a job to, to, for an outcome for someone else. I mean, even though that outcome was for me, it was, I wasn't having sex anymore to have sex and have that pleasure. And I do think that your advocacy can come into our world in the infertility world, because there should be more focus on us having sex and having, you know, um, knowledge about our vulva, about our clitoris, about all those things. Because like you say, it's just about your vagina and looking up your cavity. I mean, when you're dealing with infertility, that's all they're looking is up that one hole. (laughs) You're like, I also, so I don't buy that female sexual pleasure has no relevance to fertility. One thing interesting is I found several studies showing that oxytocin improves sperm transport. Yeah. A hundred percent. Oxytocin is released in, you know, extremely large amounts with orgasm. And, you know, I have this one graph that I posted a couple times from a study that looked at changes in oxytocin levels, you know, from before to after sex in women who orgasmed and women who didn't. And in women who don't orgasm during sex, their oxytocin, oxytocin levels barely change. They only change a little. And in women who do their oxytocin levels, like I think they like double or I forget exactly, but they change significantly. Um, And so it's like 10 times more. And so to me, it seems crazy to assume that that doesn't have any effects. And the evidence that people have presented um, to show that pleasure doesn't impact fertility just hasn't been convincing to me at all. Um, You know, when people have looked at 
whether there's an evolutionary role of female orgasm. So there's this one paper I shared. Again, I can't remember who published it. It's on my Instagram somewhere. Um, <laughs> no, it's okay. You publish so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just, and I, I read a lot and I should get more or- organized with, you know, keeping track of citations, but I tend to just try and remember things and, you know, then I just search for them later. I can usually find them. Um, but basically there's this paper that evaluates all the research relevant to, you know, an evolutionary role of female orgasm. And, um, you know, one of the main theories is that it provides a mechanism for covert sire choice. Mm -hmm. Like you can have sex with multiple men and the man who impregnates you is the one you orgasm with, you know? Wow. (laughs) There's some evidence for that. Like, honestly, I forget. I forget, but basically what they did is they went over multiple papers and they classified like which theory they supported. Um, And there are also just, you know, more indirect ways. Like if you orgasm, you're going to have more sexual desire. You're going to want to have more sex. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, you're also going to want to stay with that partner longer and they will, you know, be there for you while you're pregnant and be there for your children. So um, you know, and I tend to think that that is, so I actually tend to think that pair bonding is fundamentally a reproductive function yeah. because that's what makes reproduction successful. Right. Yeah. I mean, I a hundred percent agree with you and it, it kind of puts that into like a quote unquote woo woo area because we've obviously proved that you don't have to have this beautiful, amazing orgasm sex. And then, you know, even like, let's just be honest, like love your partner to get pregnant. But I do think from a spiritual point of view that women dealing with infertility, one of the number one things that I encourage my clients to do is bring back the pleasure, the fun and the excitement of sex. Because I do believe that it it creates this whole mental and emotional aspect that doctors will never touch on, right? They will never, you know, say and hopefully like, they will. I mean, they don't. I mean, they really don't, right? I mean, I think <laughs> yes. one of my biggest victories is I got this Walters Kluwer reproductive system poster changed. So what's really really crazy is that the female reproductive system poster previously had less than half as many labels as the male reproductive system poster, which is crazy. We have more reproductive equipment, but somehow they find over twice as much stuff to label for men. Like, and how did nobody notice that or say anything about it or care? Right. Because those posters are everywhere. You know, like they're in tons of doctors' offices. Doctors are all familiar with them and nobody ever thought twice about it. It's really it's really crazy sometimes the stuff that nobody thinks twice about. Mm-hmm. Um, but so what's cool is I got them to feature the clitoris very prominently on that poster. So it says female reproductive system. And then the clitoris is taking up like a fifth of the poster. Nice. And that makes me really happy Yeah. Uh, because yeah. So in my opinion, sex and reproduction, you know, shouldn't really be separated. No. Um, I mean, sex is reproductive behavior. Pleasure is the reason why we engage in reproductive behavior. One thing funny is that in Sapiens by Yuval Harari, um, he says that most men 
would not bother to would probably not bother they didn't play with reproduction. And so males evolved to feel pleasure with reproduction in order to motivate them to reproduce. And he goes on and on about it, but he doesn't mention females being motivated to reproduce. Mm -hmm. It's really disturbing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The other thing funny is I was in another lecture by a professor on, you know, he was arguing that, you know, our taste that we haven't developed a resistance to alcohol because we experience benefits from it, like social bonding, um, increased trust. So he argues that it's had this role in like civilizations and that we get benefits from it. If we didn't get so many benefits from it, we would have developed the resistance. And there is this thing called Asian flushing syndrome, but it's pretty rare. It hasn't spread in the human population. Anyway, so when he started off his lecture talking about you know, other things that we like. Like we like eating Twinkies and we like masturbating. And he's like, well, of course we like those things because, um, well, he said, you know, we like masturbating because sex had to be the most pleasurable thing because reproduction is so important, right? It's so evolutionarily important. And that's why sex is so great for people. And so mm -hmm. the fact that we've separated this for women is just it's the most fucked up thing. Like, yeah. why do people assume that only half the female, that it's sufficient for only the males to want to have sex? Yeah. It, it doesn't, the other thing that's funny is there's so much medical focus on desire, but not pleasure, right? So doctors, you know, they always talk about how the number one sexual dysfunction in women is desire dysfunction, which I think is the biggest load of bullshit because like, what, okay because I tend to wonder how often desire dysfunction is just caused by bad sex. <laughs> you know? Well, and that's, that's what, yeah. I mean, there's this doctor who follows me, Dr. Teresa Wood, and that's exactly what she says. She says, oh yeah, women have desire disorder when like they're not getting enough clitoral stimulation and it's usually really fucking easy to solve. Excuse yeah. my language. I don't know, you're but fine. We can cuss on it's here. A, it's a bit funny and then, you know, when they went to create a female Viagra, they created a desire drug. I don't know. I just see this pattern and I question the validity of it. Like, yeah. do women, do we, and it's also funny because for millennia, cultures have been trying to suppress female desire. And still there are so many ways in which our modern culture suppresses female desire. I mean, we are taught from a young age to be like, to like not be sluts, you know, we're not supposed to be too sexual, mm -hmm. you know, like, like recently a guy I was seeing told me he had a Madonna whore complex and I kind of freaked out at him and said that was a deal breaker, you know, but the sad thing is that our culture as a whole kind of has a little bit of a Madonna whore complex and what we see in medicine is the Madonna whore complex, like this separation of reproduction from sex, the separation of, you know, reproductive anatomy from anatomy involved in sexual pleasure. It's crazy. And, and I think, it, sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> but I think that, you know, just living in this environment is like a clip 
boner killer you know what I mean yeah massively (laughs) yeah I mean I went viral on TikTok because um I there was like a trend of like my mom didn't like have the sex talk or whatever but one of the things that I the thing that I said was I didn't know shit about you know the clitoris I didn't even know there was like a clitoris right or the vulva or I know I had a vagina yeah that's all I was taught right and I didn't know anything about my fertility health and the reason was is I saw more penises in sex ed than I saw of my own body they taught me more about the penis and what not to do with it and where it shouldn't go and when it shouldn't go and just don't have sex you know instead of like really having these like a quote-unquote uncomfortable conversations hopefully they won't be uncomfortable I mean we're talking to our six-year-old he's about to turn seven he's asking us about sex and we are being really honest with him and even last night he he said mommy what's the real word and I was like what do you mean I was like you must know and he's like no I just know it's not called a special hug (laughs) I was like okay look you know know more than anyone in your class knows we're gonna use special hug until a later time until an age appropriate time right but we're being very honest with him we're talking about you know things that I didn't even get talked to about until I was like 18 19 20 and I was figuring this shit out on my own right and I Mm -hmm. want my children and I want us women um, now to be able to be, I I talk about conscious mamas. I want conscious mamas who are going to be conscious and bring all this information, whether you're a boy mom or have girls, that all of our future generation, this is not going to be uncomfortable and we're going to know a lot more and we can be um, safe you know, when we go to the doctor's office and we can be knowledgeable and we can like just stand in our own powers and especially us women dealing with infertility and sex has become a job, a chore, a drain to get this information and and bring the sex back into our life because that's joy and pleasure. And that's like you say, it's so important to reproductive health. Yeah, I mean, one thing crazy, like speaking of sex ed is, you know, so many people learn about sex as being about male pleasure. I mean, Mm -hmm. we define the act of sex around male orgasm. Yeah. And female orgasm isn't even included in the definition. It's not included in what you learn about. So like when I was 17, I didn't even know that women could have orgasms. Like I, that's really embarrassing, but no, I knew about the male orgasm. I didn't know about the female orgasm, I knew that it was like normal for men to masturbate, but I thought it was like supposed to be bad if women did, which is really sad and embarrassing to admit that I somehow picked up all these crazy ideas. Um, but, it's, thing- but it's not, I want to say it's not because you're not alone. And I think there's like millions of women out there that feel the exact same way and are too embarrassed to even admit it or you know so I don't think you should be embarrassed because to be honest I remember having a a conversation in 10th grade 9th 10th grade and not knowing a baby came out of a woman's vagina like that's how bad it was right so you're not alone in that so I was taught very early on that I had a vagina and a vagina was a hole and that's what defined my anatomy Mm-hmm. And I remember like being very, very young when I asked my parents, I said, you know, like they were calling my brother's penis, the pee pee. And I said, where's my pee pee? 
And they yeah. said it was on the inside. And I was just like, okay, but that wasn't, I mean, I had external genitals too, that also should have been given a name yeah. and they weren't. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, then by the time, you know, so my labia minora got a lot bigger during puberty, like my memory is they didn't stick out before puberty. And then they started sticking out. And I was kind of like, what is that? I, you know, I, and when you're not even given a name for it, it leaves the impression that maybe it shouldn't be there. Maybe there's mm-hmm. something wrong, you know? And so I think that not naming, not talking about vulvas, not naming the vulva um, contributes to a lot of the shame about vulvas that women and girls feel. And when you, if you look at women's stories, a lot of the times their insecurities start when they're, you know, like 12 or 13 or, you know, around puberty, because that's when bodies often change. And Mm -hmm. what's really funny is everybody talks about like, like people talk about how your body's going to change. They're like, oh, you're going to get boobs. And it's crazy that people think that we need to be told because (laughs) we can see, you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of obvious, but something that's not obvious and is like, you know, that would be really helpful to be told is like, oh, your vulva is going to change. Um, and that's something that really needs to be addressed because, it, you know, the most common age to feel insecure about the vulva is, you know, like when you're a teen, you know, so it, it's actually kind of fucked up how labiaplasties get marketed as rejuvenation mm-hmm. but the average patient is like 23 you know early 20s late teens is you know the population of women who most often want these procedures and yet they're marketed as rejuvenation so really it's about convincing these very young women that they look old yeah yeah and I, I mean, it's crazy because I think across the board in all of women's health, it's cer- centered around your age. And um, my following knows that um, age plays a very small role in fertility and the way um, the reproductive organs work. Yet, Yes, there's menopause. Yes, you know, that is a thing. But um, to sit there and, you know, tell these young women you know, that you're old because your vulva looks a certain way or your test results are coming a certain way or your fertility drops at 35. So watch out. I mean, it's all bullshit. And I think it does come back to, you know, that whole, you know, male dominated um, society based way of thinking. And yeah, it's really important to start shifting that conversation. Like I said in the beginning, um, the work that you have done, I know that you are, um, it's a lot, it, it's hard to get out there on social media and change the world, you know, so um, it is uh, my hats off to you, the work that you have already done, I know is already gonna put different, um, you know, ripples out into the world. Um, so thank you for that. If people do want to come follow you, where can they find you on social media? It's Jessica underscore and underscore pin. It's A-N-N and then underscore P-I-N. Yeah. And I'm also Mediclit on Twitter. I am currently suspended from Twitter because <laughs> I said, if men are really as 
biologically evil, as David Buss says, then we need a plan to exterminate them. And I <laughs> said if, I put if in capital letters, <laughs> right? Because I like to believe that, you know, men can do better. But what Buss argues in his book is that men are not going to change until we weed them out of the gene pool. And I'm like, oh, we need to change their genes? Like, yeah, that, that's like an argument for eugenics or like, I don't Crazy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, or yeah. can't we just like, I don't, to, to me, it's actually a bit bizarre how men like that book and how men like his work as if they're just looking for reasons to be bad. And, yeah. you know, and it's ironic that like, as a feminist, I'm like, no, no, like men are not bad. Men can be nice. It's a choice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, I'm yeah. currently in it, so I'm not active there, but Medicalite is my Twitter. <laughs> m-e-d-i-c-l-i-t and i'm also on tiktok um jessica underscore and underscore pin nice and yeah you you've got big plans ahead for business school so i'm super excited for you and all the best for that all right thank you yeah thanks so much jessica bye bye Thank you once again for tuning in to the Finding Fertility podcast. If you're loving this podcast, please leave us a rating and review and let us know how this podcast is supporting you to get steps closer to creating your dream family. I hope you have a beautiful weekend and we will see you next Friday for another episode of the Finding Fertility podcast.